Ron Lagamassino sat down with moderator Stephen Kaplan for a one-on-one interview in January of 1988. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome. This is the third in the series of conversations with uh, directors talking about directing comedy. Uh, my name is Steve Kaplan. I'm the artistic director of Manhattan Punchline. And with us today is Ron Lagomarsino, my little note say here, who is presently represented off-Broadway with Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, he also has just recently directed Only You at Circle Rep and Laughing Wild at Manhattan. Uh, that's Playwrights Horizons. I got Manhattan Punchline on the brain. Um, as well as working at Arena Stage, the O'Neill Theater Center. He was a resident director at Hartford Stage. Um, the first question I have is, did you, when you started out, did you specialize in comedy or think of specializing in comedy, or did it evolve? No. Um, no, I started out at NYU directing uh, Old Times, uh, Interplay, and uh, The Winter's Tale. It was my thesis project. Uh, and um, I think it's been a mixture through the years, but I... I have tended to gravitate towards comedy because uh, I'm sort of attracted to the science of it, and I like the uh, the uh, what it it takes to to craft it and to work with people in order to structure a scene so that it is funny. And uh, yeah, I'm just I tend to be drawn to it, even if I direct something that one would think of as a drama. I like to cast people that make me laugh. Because, I don't know, it just speaks of kind of a, a, a particular way of looking at the world, a particular bent that uh, anything that is unusual and unexpected, I like to latch on to. When you, when you look at actors for comedy, um, what are you looking for specifically? Do you have something that you're specifically uh, in mind for? Well, it depends on the kind of comedy, I guess. Uh, I, uh, whenever I direct something like... Uh, Theater, as I did about five years ago, it's a very difficult casting because there are, it seems, fewer and fewer people who are capable of, of acting that kind of uh, style and, and still be funny. A lot of people can be funny uh, in a contemporary comedy, and then the minute they, they have to deal with language uh, or, or some sort of dialect, the humor is out the limit for some So it's a uh, casting for those kinds of plays are, are can be a particular kind of a, a nightmare. Um, but for plays like uh, like Only You uh, down at Circle Rep, uh, which we did last a couple months ago, uh, I I guess I casted that pretty much maybe you would cast a, an actor for a film. I wanted people to be very much like, like the characters. And then in doing that, I found that I, uh, I 
cast two actors exactly against type. So I guess there really is no, no formula. Greg Gurman and Rob Gomes were in that production, and uh, in some ways they were more suited for the other's role. But um, I wanted to go against type in that instance, and I'm glad that I did. Well, in in casting um, actors, whether it's you know whether it's against type or with type, is there something specific that you're looking for in their craft in terms of, of their approach to the comic material? Is there is it just a how well they do in the reading, or is it certain? You talk about a bent. Can you describe that bent? Hmm. Can you describe a, a good actor who would be perfectly okay, say, in old time, um, and simply uh, doesn't seem to be able to do the comedy? Do you, what, what's the difference there? Um, I don't know. Again, I think it, it depends on, for example, in Driving Miss Daisy, when we came down to casting that, uh, Dana Ivey is a very, very funny woman. And uh, I didn't think of Driving Miss Daisy as a comedy. Uh, producers do, and, and most other people do. Uh, and, it, and it's, well, no, I guess you would call it a play. I mean, it is a comedy. I mean, you know, they're both alive at the end. Uh, but, but Dana is a... Uh, I knew that she would bring, without commenting on it, she would bring a very, uh, without meaning to be, just when, whenever she uh, gets very intense as Miss Daisy, uh, it's, uh, it's quite humorous. Whenever, when they first go to uh, their first ride in the car, when they go to the Piggly Wiggly, uh, Hope the chauffeur decides to go a different way from which she is not she is accustomed to going, and um, and Miss Daisy freaks out. I mean, it could have been done uh, just her being annoyed and, and saying, "Well, let's just go the way I always go to it." But uh, I told her to think of it as her being hijacked, and that maybe you know, he was going to take her to deepest darkest Africa or something, and she. She just, uh, she flips out at that moment and thinks that she's, she's totally out of control and is being kidnapped. And, uh, and Dana, I wouldn't ask another actress to do that because they wouldn't be able to uh, see that kind of absurdity in that particular way. I would have chosen a different metaphor. But uh, Dana has a very uh, keen sense of the absurd and immediately latched onto that and, and flew with it. And uh, it's a very real moment, but it uh, it also is very very funny. What about Morgan? He's not normally known as a as a comic actor, or or has has not gained acclaim as a comic actor. He's very funny, very warm, and very human in that. Um, did he bring those qualities uh, immediately? Did you? How did you work in shaping them? What's funny, I guess his most recent work is not in comedy, but his background has a lot of it. Uh, and he did, he did a lot of musicals. He did uh, early on Broadway after Trayvon Miller and Hello Dolly. And, uh, and I worked with him five years ago on uh, Another World, soap opera. 
<laughs> a bastion of comedy in it. Jack A. Herre was on the show. She was very funny. She was doing But uh, Morgan um, is really a very funny person and smart as a whip. And, uh, and I think the humor of Hope, uh, again, like the chauffeur uh, in Daisy, stems from uh, that man, <coughs> that man's ability to be patient and to, uh, and to let Daisy you know, keep badgering and, and, uh, and screaming and, and, and all of that. Because Hope knows uh, that she will eventually come around. I mean, it's not as though that over 25 years there's the manipulation around this part. But, uh, and Morgan latched onto that and brought a lot of that, that to the role. Uh, so that the humor comes a lot in the way he says, yes, or Miss Daisy. You can hear his mind ticking away, and in the pauses, and the length of pauses, uh, and this wonderful way of physicalizing, of listening, of mm-hmm. you know, chewing on his cut. Yeah, and the hands are hands are going. Uh, somebody compared, did you bring that in? Did you did you work with him on that? Uh, no, I didn't work with him on that at all. That was entirely. But, but I did not approach Daisy as, again, as a comedy, as I would, you know, a hay fever, flannery, or, 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 or even Bigby, uh, a play like I did in the theater club, which is a contemporary comedy. Um, any laugh that came uh, had to come. On its own, we did not spend any time in rehearsal saying where we spent a little bit of time in rehearsal saying if we if we take this kind of a pause and we look here, we'll get a laugh. I think we did very very early on, and then we just decided to let that go. And in fact, there were some laughs that we didn't want and uh, took out, and we changed some lines so that we didn't get get laughs. Because, uh, particularly when we moved to the big theater, uh, Playwrights Horizon when we started, there were 74 seats. And the audience isn't as prone to laugh as from now over 300. And uh, when we moved to the new theater, it was billed as the new comedy hit. And uh, and audiences came in, and, and they knew this was a comedy hit. And so they, they, she came out, and the first thing she said was very, very funny, and the uh, second thing was funnier. And um, and it, it, um, it was thrown out of whack a bit. Uh, so we went back to work and uh, tried to squelch all uh, of I, I love, I, you know, I think uh, even the most, you know, I mean, Chekhov, for instance, uh, has to have laughs because it's, it's about human beings and you know, foibles and, and the simple things go wrong that we all identify with, and that's important. But, uh, but there were times when it just destroyed the rhythm of the scene and we decided not to, not to have any. Um, talk a little bit about what you look for when you read a play, um, what, what makes you laugh, what you find funny, and then 
you talked a little bit about um, shaping uh, Latin Wild. Uh, talk a little bit about your process, how you how you work with the playwright dramaturgical sense. Um, well, gosh, in the case of Laughing Wild, it was a uh, it was our first time out, uh, and um, it was a play that was written for Catherine Kerr to be the woman, and uh, Chris Durang was to be the man in it. And uh, her piece was written first a few years ago, and then I think last year Chris wrote his monologue, and then this year wrote what became Act Two. And the two of them met uh, in a dream. Um, and um, I respect Chris's work a great deal. And uh, and you never know how uh, a playwright, the first time you work with him, is going to respond to your input. And so I think there's a, a testing of the waters period where you... Uh, you have to get to know, yes, I, I, I decided to do the play because uh, it was very funny, but uh, but how much in tune our sense of humor and our way of looking at the world was could not be judged just from my reading the play and saying, Chris, I think the play is fantastic, I'm going to do it. Um, so I would, uh, I would suggest um, that he might, might think about moving this paragraph here or this sentence here uh, and see how that fit on him. And then, uh, and then I might earmark about you know, a dozen other places that I'm going to uh, mention along the way. And, uh, and I think when he saw that some of my suggestions were, were working and he liked them, he began to trust me more as a playwright. Hopefully, does begin to trust the director more because there isn't that much time. Uh, it's not a long-term relationship where maybe next year we'll attack this problem. Um, you have to move pretty quickly. Um, so, um, so my suggestions were coming faster and more furious, and uh, and he began to trust me more and more. Luckily, because since he was in the play, uh, there was a, I felt an enormous responsibility uh, being the only I out there. Uh, but um, getting back to your, to your original question about when I first read the play, uh, I thought there was something sort of dangerous about the play. Not in a not in that it was going to be uh, the most controversial play, but I felt that it, it took a lot of ordinary things that, that happened to us in our lives and, and, and looked at them in a particular kind of way that made us uh, constantly reflect on what was going on around us and how we react to those things. And also that the long section uh, on AIDS, the discussion when uh, uh, Chris had a section uh, where there was an imagined uh, discussion between God and his archangel Gabriel, uh, 
assuming that, as some people say, that AIDS is a the, the plague that God has sent to the gay community. Um, I, I love the fact that an audience could howl finally at, at the topic of AIDS. And that uh, it was one of the funniest sections of the play. And, uh, and it was upsetting, but also very, uh, very cathartic, and I think important for our times. And I know it's a part of that. What, what, you talked about the science of comedy. Um, have you uh, discovered any theorems of your own along the way? Any, anything that works for you? Anything that, that you found that uh, that through practice and experience, gee, this, this always seems to work in terms of putting it together the physics of comedy. Right. Somebody on a banana peel or something. Does that always work? Always. always. I, actually, in old times. Um, well, I think I think one thing that I always try and do is to uh, let the audience know the particular kind of comedy, the particular kind of world that they're entering into as soon as possible. Um, as soon as the audience knows where the play is living and where they are living in relation to the play, the better off you are. Because they don't worry or they're focused and they're with you and they're hearing what you want them to hear. Um, we found down at Circle Rep, uh, a theater not known for doing um, plays that prompted Clyde Barnes to say, dazzlingly silly. Uh, <laughs> put that quote in the paper. Um, we, you know, I was talking with uh, Tanya Barrison, uh, the artistic director, and uh, and Lanford Wilson hanging around. And uh, the audiences expect to see what is the poetic lyric, realism, realism. Or lyric, yeah, lyric. Um, portrait. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so, um, pre show music, uh, Frankie Valley, just went right to the heart of it. Because the, the protagonist in the play has a penchant for really bad, like Dusty Springfield and all these Don Ho and these creatures, and so I just I just uh, pummeled the audience with this stuff for about a half an hour. And um, but the play also was in the framework of a of a fairy tale, and so the uh, the set, which is designed by John Lee Beatty, um, lent itself to sort of a storybook kind of approach and uh, so I had the set open up to this music which is from some Disney and the bed comes out and the two of them have just finished making love so already the audience knows that it is a, it's a fairy tale it's a contemporary fairy tale and they're in bed so it's not going to be a typical fairy tale and that strange Frankie Valley music which is sort of a mystery uh, which you come to understand why uh, during the course of the evening. Um, Laughing Wild, we did it with uh, talcum powder. Um, mm-hmm. it, I opted for a 
something that was strange but somehow felt right to me. Uh, the woman's monologue, um, she directly talks to the audience, um, but I didn't want it to be like a lecture or to be a typical, here we are sitting in the theater, and I thought, well, where would she be? She wouldn't be in her apartment. I just wanted her to be, to come through a, a door from some place that has been treating her sort of badly into a sort of a haven. And uh, I didn't want to have a lot of realistic stuff around. So uh, I chose to, with Tom Lynch, the designer, to uh, have there be a door in the center surrounded by, by black and that the door would be open uh, as the audience was coming in, and there would be light coming through it, but couldn't quite tell what it was. And there would be sound of uh, street noise, street traffic, and obviously New York, big city, there's a lot of silence and things going on. Um, and that when she entered through the door at the top, and the music and the, and the, the sound was getting louder, and ghetto blasters were coming in, as soon as she slammed the door, I wanted the door to disappear so that the black wall was actually an iris. And as soon as the door shut, she came through. The iris had swallowed up the door. And she had on this white coat, and, and also the sound evaporated as soon as uh, the door shut. Um, and uh, she takes a swipe at her coat, and this huge cloud of what hopefully would look like city dirt uh, came off in, in front of her shaft of light, which was picked it up, and, uh, and uh, I thought that would do it, but audiences were sort of, I'm not quite sure if that was meant to be funny or not. Uh, so, so ultimately, um, she got the laugh by the way she, she looks at a compact of herself and uh, doesn't like what she sees, and the way she shuts it, the sound of that, and she puts it in the purse and clicks the purse shut, and throws it down. There was a series of noises. Um, not that I didn't trust that the material itself would be funny, but I wanted, I just wanted them to know immediately. Because it looked strange. There was like one chair on stage and her. And it's Krista Rang. I didn't want the audience to be like this. I wanted them to be like that a little bit later on. But um, at first I wanted them to be right with us. So that, uh, that's what I uh, But Daisy, um, Daisy, I wasn't, oh, that's not true. Um, I wanted Daisy to start with, uh, as Alfred calls for in the, in the stage directions, with a uh, the car crash. Daisy, uh, uh, before the play starts, or as the play starts, has gone to the store and it's back to your car uh, in Atlanta. The houses are on hills and whatnot and, and the car uh, goes, she puts it in reverse instead of drive and it, and, it, and it sort of goes over this chasm on top of the next door neighbor's garage and then hits the tool shed and uh, and uh, so I asked Alfred to get out of the line Idella, who's the maid, I'm going to the market to come from off stage, right as the, the house lights have gone out and the music is still going on. And then as the music is fading out, this sort of beautiful, sort of southern lyric uh, music, you hear the sound of the car starting, so you know that she's going to the market. 
and then immediately there's this horrible squeak of brakes and this enormous crash that keeps going on. And uh, I didn't want to waste time with the audience being confused about did someone die and it's this and it's the ghost and this is me or, or what is going on. So um, uh, I added uh, the sound of a cat screeching at the very end of the, uh, the car crash so that the audience would be pulled in by the crash but not not spending any second of the play wondering if we're going to be told that someone had died. Because that was wasted, wasted time. Um, and uh, it doesn't get a laugh. A couple of people chuckle, but it somehow just... It, it, it certainly registered. I, I know when I, when I saw it the other day, it, uh, it, it was such a subtle touch, and yet you said, gee, there's, you know, you put this pack in. And <laughs> Cheap. Cheap. Well, not, not cheap, but very, but very effective, and again, uh, very much pulling us into the exact world as opposed to, well, we're in the South and take it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, the designs of the shows, so you're, talking, you're talking about creating the, the comic environment, you're really talking about creating the scenic environment and, and an oral environment, um, and both Daisy and, and Laughing Wild, while being very funny, are also very beautiful. Um, how do you start working on that? Do you, uh, do you come up with uh, a strategy and, and confer with a designer? Do you wait for the designer to come to you? Um, well, in that case, those, both those plays were designed by Tom Lynch. Um, and uh, Daisy was particularly difficult because of uh, well, number one, I was out of town at the time. I was in Seattle doing that Seattle Rep doing Noises Off. And I flew back on my day off to have design meetings and casting sessions. Um, and um, there were all these cars that we needed. And how to do the cars. And, and, but one thing that I, I did know is that I did not want there to be a lot of stuff. I never want there to be a lot of stuff. I don't want what's necessary. Um, and um, we came up with the idea of the stools. But then how do we reconcile the fact that in Daisy's house, there's a wheelchair and a rug and a table and a lamp and pictures and silver frames. And then when we go to Bruce's, uh, her son's office, uh, there's a wagon that comes in a couple times. And, uh, and there's a desk and a chair, uh, and another chair. Uh, how do we reconcile two stools being in the car and having the real stuff? Especially since I, I'm not particularly fond of mine um, in most instances because it can become sort of precious and some arty and make people think like it so this is important <laughs> and uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a great lesson for me because it, it taught me that uh, I could break some rules and it didn't matter 
that the stools were right uh, and that the chair was right, that somehow Daisy's house, which throughout the 25 years that the play takes place in, doesn't change much. Uh, actually, probably not at all. Maybe things get holes in them, maybe a silver cover we put over, but that house is sort of like her station. So that seemed right. The stool, the uh, cars changed. There were, I think there were six different cars that we used. And um, there was no way that we were going to. I mean, what does one do? Do you, do you have benches? If you have benches, then maybe you have backs of the benches. If you have that, then maybe they should be upholstered relative, and then we change the cars, so we'll have to all change. So let's just be risky here and just do it with stools. And then I thought, God, I'm going to have to go to Dan Ivy and Morgan Freeman and say, and uh, we get in the car, do this, and you know, don't bump your head on the... And um, it didn't matter to them. First time we did the tune of the car, I didn't have to say a word. They just went over to it and just opened side it. And I breathed a little sigh of relief, so we didn't have to have that discussion. Um, and uh, but one thing we did do in terms of the mime is we didn't get we didn't get down to like you know the miming the China radio and, and this car handle was different in 1952 and then it changed. And we had a constant uh, so that the audience because what was the reason why we had the mime at all is that the ritual of him getting into the was very important from the first time when she rushes ahead and opens it up for herself to the last time you see them when she totally relies on him to help her in and out of the car, which um, I actually asked Bob Wallman, the composer, to compose this whole long thing, which became sort of the ballet of the piece when they're going to the UJ bank and he moving quite slow now during the 80s and 90s. Um, so, um, but I went home um, rather uh, anxious and uh, depressed is the right word, but I was uh, quite anxious during rehearsals of that show because uh, the play existed in so many small moments. And every day we'd rehearse, and we'd only rehearse like four or five hours a day. Um, and I kept telling them to slow down, to find you know, the process could be as long as it takes as long as they're holding, I don't care. So we'd rehearse a couple scenes, and they'd get older, and they'd explore the old age, and we'd pick and choose. And uh, I wondered what we had. I mean, I loved the play, but I wondered what we had, because there's so many little moments. And uh, what we learned was that, that I think the reason why the play has such appeal, I mean, I think they're well-observed characters, but I think there's an accumulation of those small moments and to trust that if this moment is true and right and leads into that one that you can build in that way. But, um, and certainly you bridge it very well with the music, beautiful, the lighting, the set moves you. Yeah, the, uh, the music was very, very important. Bob Wallman is a longtime collaborator of Alfred Uri. He wrote the Robert Wagner together and many other things. Shows. Was he in on the beginning of the project? Or? He was. Well, Alfred, Alfred said, if we have a composer on this, I would feel sort of odd it not being Bob Waldman. And, uh, and um, I mean, working with a composer is, is similar in many ways to working with a playwright. I mean, we had discussions, and I said, 
this feeling here at the end of the scene is this, and music should somehow be from Oak's point of view and take us to this point over here. And how did I know? Because composing is, is a, it's a, it's a great mystery to me. I have great respect for composers. Uh, and love to use music. How did I know that he was going to go home and hear the same music that I was doing? Well, he did. How did you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He did, and uh, but at first when he told me he was going to score it, he was thinking for violin, cello, and uh, uh, banjo. I thought banjo. <laughs> it's just going to be cliche seven. I didn't think that that strongly, but I thought, well, let's just wait and see. And, uh, and he played me the theme from the show, and uh, uh, I asked him to play it twice as fast because it looked like he was getting into uh, sentimentality. The show is an enormous sentiment, but we, we have tried to make it steel hard in terms of it, it never caving into sentimentality because it's a People aren't sentimental. And, uh, it's a toughness throughout. But there's a there's a, a, ge- a gentleness and a, and a sweetness in the people. Um, and um, boy, he fine-tuned the music every time. So when we're going to the cemetery here, I want it to be. I don't want it to be like oh, we're going to where dead people are and we're underground and. But I, I do want there to be a sense that uh, they've been together for a year, and, and it's sort of melancholy, but it's this and that and the other thing. And, uh, and those discussions with composers are very important because the, the music has to send the play forward. It can't be, oh, the scene's over, now we're going to hear 30 seconds of unrelated music, just like generic southern music or anything. It has to relate exactly to the moment that you're creating. But which also caused me great anxiety because they kept saying we have a deadline because if we don't get the music composed by this date, then we can't record it by this date. And so I was meeting with the composer before I knew what the last moment was going to somehow feel like and look like and what that tone was. And so I had to guess a lot, knowing that you know on, on our budget at Playwrights Horizons, we weren't going to be able to call anybody back into the studio and... I mean, there are, there are a couple sound cues now where the business has outgrown, uh, not outgrown, but out, uh, the business takes longer than the, than the music. And uh, there's some silences in the play that uh, I wish we could go back and give it a place. But it lasted exactly the same. It's very important to find. You're putting Francis Fernhagen into the role of Daisy now. Um, what are the difficulties? What are what are the new things you're discovering? Learning anything new about the play? Yeah, that it it, it is. Uh, you feel that when when you've worked with people like Dan Ivey and Morgan Freeman, that you feel like, oh my God, how can we ever replace them? Well, Frances Sternhagen uh, blew us away in her first run through. Two days ago, uh, I was delighted when uh, she uh, wanted to do it because we certainly wanted her to do it. But uh, I 
talking about Dana is from Dana's from Atlanta. And, uh, and she understands that the music of the language. Uh, but um, and Francis at the very first uh, her tendency was uh, she wanted to to uh, smile a few times in the play. Don't, she doesn't smile. Uh, and uh, it's not my fault. Uh, and uh, and she and she didn't smile, and so that made her find out, you know, what what might be going on with a person who might be smiling inside but doesn't want to show them inside. And uh, she's going to be marvelous. She's going to be marvelous. I, I'm so excited to see. She's already come such a long way. And Dana's performance evolved, and then I saw her last performance yesterday. And, uh, that woman's performance grew every week that I saw her. Uh, constantly fresh. And, uh, and always looking, searching, and going deeper and deeper and deeper. And if Francis is where she is now, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, exciting to work with her. I have one more question before we, we open it up to uh, the audience. Um, describe your the way you work with actors. Um, some directors would never tell an actor don't smile. They would they would sort of handcuff themselves before they gave that physical given. Uh, other directors would say faster, louder, funnier. Uh, you know, more, more, more. Never, never squelch a laugh. No, no, more laugh. So um, you've worked with. The range, Dana Ivy, Francis Ferdinand Hagen, to Christopher Durang. While Christopher is not uh, certainly a, a, a novice actor, he is the playwright actor. Uh, is there anything, knowing that depends upon the play, depends upon uh, the actor, is there any specific method you have or process you have that takes you from hay fever to noises off to laughing wild? Um. I always want to know what an actor's instincts are first. I mean, I let Francis have the instinct when it's mine. <laughs> Don't stop it. Uh, no, I mean, that is just that we just made a decision a long time ago that that is one thing uh, that the Daisy didn't do. But uh, I always want to know um, how an actor. Uh, First feels and, and where he or she wants to go in part. In the first uh, read through, we talk and uh, I ask some questions, which are sort of no, not anything earth shattering. Uh, as sort of a catalyst for the actor sort of talking about the world because I want I want uh, I want to find out. How they think, and I want to find out how they work. And the more I let them express themselves in the first few days, first week of rehearsal, if I haven't worked them before, um, the more I, the better and faster I'll be able to work later on. Um, I, uh, I have enormous respect for actors. I, I, I always. Uh, I always listen to any 
any suggestions or, or, or the enactments of trying anything, I always give them free reign to explore anything. Uh, and and then, then you know, if I agree, I tell them. I disagree, I tell them. And uh, again, I think it's a matter of building up trust. Um, if I don't know the answer to something I say, I don't know. I think actors respond to that uh, if they think that you're, if you always have an answer for everything, I think you begin to mistrust that because nobody has an answer to everything. Um, I try not to to uh, laden uh, the work with a lot of discussion about style. Uh, if we're doing hay fever and it's important that the gladiola get shoved into the jar and plank the bottom of the, of the jar on this <coughs> word. Um, there's probably a good reason, and I try to try for everything. It's more work for me, but I try for everything to be absolutely organic because uh, um, if it isn't, it's it's not going to be funny. Uh, um, if it isn't. Um, then when you go away and the show opens, the, the actor will probably veer away from doing it that way because it never made any sense to them in the first place. Um, so I always try to, to put myself uh, in their shoes when I ask them to do something. And, uh, and then depending on how they respond to it, if they embrace it, then I'll throw them 10 minutes. Judy Ivey was in Hay Fever, because it came in Festival Theater. Uh, she played Sorrow, Reed Bernie played Simon. And uh, I would, like, you know, give that woman an umbrella, and she just started doing, like, wonderful things with it. And then I could say, yeah, yeah that's great, but um, probably don't do that. She said, yeah, you're right, you're right. And then uh, enormously inventive and very brave. I love brave actors, actors who will... Sometimes I'll say to an actor, like, I'm not sure why. It's sort of an outside-in note, but if you, if, you, if you do this physical action at this moment, I think it's going to be right. And I love when an actor says, yeah, okay, and just does it. Because um, if they trust me, then we'll find out if it's right or wrong. But if there's endless discussions, well, my character wouldn't do this because this, this, and this. Um, then what do you do in that case? Um, I I try to persuade them to do it. Um, if they won't do it, then we're both robbed, and I have to find out another way of of, of getting what I want. Uh, or I'll, like I say, I will try anything an actor suggests uh, up to a point. Uh, and that point is the point at which uh, there isn't enough time and uh, we have to simply buckle down. Well, let's make sure that there's enough time for some questions. Not segue. Uh, uh, are there any questions? Thank you.
you know, with him in the role of actor uh, and actor playwright, actually. Uh, um, well, I wanted to capitalize on Chris's persona, uh, and uh, I gave him a lot of business that seemed to uh, go hand in hand with uh, who he is. He's not a character actor. He's, he's Chris Durant. Um, and I, I found that uh, <coughs> he wasn't an actor that felt comfortable uh, doing a lot of blocking for himself. And uh, he wanted to be told, on this line, go over here. And then once I gave that to him, then he felt free to um, to loosen up a bit within that. Uh, I learned a lot about comedy from listening to him perform his own material in uh, and from Catherine Kirk. Um, there were some sections which I thought he probably wanted to abandon humor and, and get a little darker. And that's not the way his that's not the way he works. It the funnier it got, sometimes it, it also got dark. But uh, he also knows how his material best gets laughs. Uh, he uh, he tended to race a lot. Slowed down. He needed um, help in picking out particular words, which, if lost, people didn't quite get. Yes. Um, I'm curious to know about your background in training. Did you start out as a director? No, I was an actor. Well, I, I guess I, I acted uh, exclusively in college in California, and uh, and I had to take a directing class. Uh, a requirement for my theater arts degree, uh, and uh, I loved it. Directed Terrence McNally's one act play called Next, uh, and it was performed one afternoon only. And I plopped myself down into the audience, and uh, it was a great thrill. And you know, I loved, I loved being able to sort of mold and shape a production. And when it came time to uh, go on to graduate school, I decided to study directing since I knew very little about it. Um, and I uh, thought it was something I wanted to explore. Not sure at that point whether or not I would give up acting or try to do both or what. But I figured uh, I had a better chance of getting into uh, a directing school for some reason than uh, as an acting student in an MFA program. And, uh, and so I, uh, I went to undergraduate in California at Santa Clara University. 
and then I came to New York uh, and went to NYU school there. And, um, and I continued acting a bit, um, and I like to act. I haven't acted in a while. Um, and, um, and that's it, really. I never really turned back from there. I didn't sort of veer off in, into other branches of theater. I was told not to stage manage. <laughs> hmm? I actually liked stage managing. I stage managed some in college, and I really liked that position if, if the director was good. I liked being sort of the uh, manager type that sort of lives on between all the different aspects of production. You went to NYU or you walked out and you Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a collectible. Um, no, I, um, what happened? I graduated, uh, it's a two-year program and I graduated and I, uh, I did some off-off-Broadway things. It's like two or three, I guess. Uh, there was a thing called the Director's uh, Festival. Festival. It's the, the, direct, the, the Direct Theater. Right. And uh, I did a Brecht piece, Exception Rule. And, uh, and uh, actually, that was sort of wacky. And then um, I was nominated for an NEA grant. They started up these uh, uh, internships for directors back in 1978, I guess, and uh, went to Harvard Stage Company, uh, where I worked for two years. And then uh, I came back to New York in 80, Those years in Hartford, uh, uh, we interns became a little bit visible because a lot of uh, the regional theaters uh, had interviewed, uh, the artistic directors of the regional theaters involved had interviewed us and knew of us and sort of um, watching us a bit. And, uh, and I hustled a lot too. I sort of constantly sending reviews and updated resumes and notes, and I have a production, you come see it. And I guess that is really what led to uh, the work at the arena stage and uh, I started building up a network of people that knew of me and did a lot of regional theater work. And then um, I got involved in soap operas because uh, I wanted to uh, try television and I learned of uh, the soap opera that a friend of mine was the associate producer of who uh, said that they were looking or they liked theater directors who could work with the actors since most of the TV directors didn't have any experience working with actors. Um, and so I, uh, I did that for, for two years. And, uh, and then, let's see, and then that ended, and then the rest of the day. Then you're not um, well, I go to the theater uh, a lot. Actually, that goes in waves. Sometimes I can't stand in the theater. It's sort of an upswing now. Um, and I go to uh, I go to the movies. 
and uh, been getting into opera a bit in the past couple of years, just listening and getting to know that world. So it's interesting. Uh, and um, don't travel as much as I'd like to. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to plan trips when you don't know where you're going to be in two weeks. Yeah, with with hindsight, but on the actual opening night, I uh, it's sort of strange how I uh, I was reading in the paper today. I think an interview with AJ Antoon, where he said that he has to love everything that he's involved with, that he has to feel passionate about. And I felt that way with the soap opera. I had to. I had to read the script and say, well, this could be good, you know. <laughs> then you go in there at 7 a.m. and, you know, the actors are smoking cigarettes and, and uh, don't want to hear about it. Uh, I don't blame them. I don't blame them. It, soap opera does that to a person. Uh, but I, I get to opening night, and uh, I, I think I have to like feel that you know we all worked hard, and I mean I love the people that I'm working with, and uh, it's it's like such a close knit thing that I can't I can't I like to think that I've done everything that I could to make this as good as. What about after opening night? Um, yeah, there are times when I will go you know, either go back to a production after a week or something and look at it and uh, some objectivity and say, we never did get that right. Or I'll read a review and, uh, and uh, I'll say they got me. Do reviews affect you? That's another thing that HN2 talks Yeah, they do. I haven't gotten to that, that spiritual plan that he's gotten to. <laughs> um, I think it's called Outness. Uh, yeah, they do. They do. I uh, I don't like being panned, but if the direct but if a critic is a good writer and has spent some time with his review, I don't mind being brought up short. And how wonderful if you can learn something from a critic. If, um, uh, a recent production of mine, uh, I read a review, and uh, <coughs> with the passage of time, I, I read the review, and it was not a good one. And I said, yep, it's true. And why didn't I see that? Uh, and it is it hurts less to acknowledge you know, that you yourself uh, could have made something better, rather than carrying this thing around where oh, I'm always right and how dare they say that and what do they know anyway which is what we all say to one another as, you know, the day after um, but um, I guess what hurts the most is when you feel that uh, a critic uh, wished he could have directed it himself or saw or, or uh, if you go to apply it and previews and read the review and you wonder what play that critic saw. Um, 
or if they want a play or all plays to be uh, the most important political, socio-political treatises or statements on definitive statements, um, then you feel like, what, what are we all doing this for? It's very frustrating. Yes, it hurts a lot. <laughs> I love raves, though. Yeah. Um, I hate those things. Uh, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I haven't. Um, I I'm not good at uh, at the speeches that a director is supposed to give the first day of rehearsal. Um, I used to write things down, and and, uh, and now sometimes I'll jot a note or two. But I, I generally um, talk as little as possible that first day. Um, sometimes means that you know if if the moment uh, if at the moment I feel so inclined, I might speak for fifteen minutes. <laughs> But it, uh, but generally the first day is simply a read through, and I'm listening and watching people how they're behaving and interacting, and uh, I try to steer the cast in a particular particular general direction uh, to sort of try if I can to open open the door and say this is generally the canvas that we're going to try to paint um, to eliminate as much of the things that won't be important as possible. Um, Well, that changes depending on what what I've just done, like right now, I'm sort of hankering to do uh, some sort of musical theater. Um, I, uh, I don't know, I read, read a lot of scripts, and I, and I don't have one particular style that I look to do. Uh, are you talking about what, what kind of play, like comedy drama, or? No, or did uh, at Circle Rep, uh, uh, it just, it, it made me laugh when I read, read, read the play, because it, it is a very, very silly play. And when I met the playwright, I wanted to do it even more, because he was the embodiment of that kind of sense of humor, that way of looking at the world. Uh, and it wasn't everybody's cup of tea. Um, 
but um, I, I like to be surprised. I like uh, I like a lot of different kinds of theater. I, I want to not do uh, a play about uh, a Jewish woman and a black chauffeur next, which tends to happen. Uh, people think, oh, he's good at. Do you find yourself getting typed? Um, it depends on what you've just done. Uh, after Digby, uh, this romantic comedy. Uh, after Latin Wild. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm trying not to be known as you know, director of just comedy because I want to do a lot of other things. I think I need to do myself something sort of big and sweeping and hard hitting. Lots of sets. The full car, six cars on right, stage. Right, right. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm, I tried to, uh, I'm hoping to do a play by Peter Parnell called uh, Hide in Hollywood, which is uh, so big it wouldn't fit on the Playwrights Horizon stage. <laughs> um, that was painful and Andre offered me that script and said it's yours if you think it can be done here and I'd already read the play and loved it but I reread it and said it can't so uh, so I went to Lynn Meadow and, and uh, because Andre was looking for a co-producer and uh, we may do it as a co-production next season um, I'm not quite sure I follow. In the in the in the Hausman Theater? Right. Oh, good. Well, we did. Well, we were very worried about moving to that theater because the old theater had six rows. And uh, it, uh, at the Houseman, the play has a lot more air around it. It's a lot more space on sides and whatnot. Uh, and there was some question as to whether or not it was going to fill up that house. And we had a lot of problems back in uh, July and August with audience members complaining they couldn't hear. And I would constantly give notes uh, saying I can't hear. And audience members are complaining. And uh, there was a great deal of resistance from uh, the actors to pump it up because we were very sensitive at that point about it not becoming this boulevard comedy. Um, but we found uh, that uh, it wasn't this uh, that delicate an organism, and that it could withstand talking louder, <laughs> and uh, and yet we were aware that, um, for example, in the last row, you can't see what's going on in the faces. Uh, but um, there was a time when this kind of a play would have been would have opened on Broadway, not off Broadway, and. Uh, 
and that would not have been a question. But because we have a luxury of performing in a theater that is half the size of this room, uh, the actors could do film acting. And, and a lot of the joy of it was uh, the communication that went, went on. I guess what you're talking about, so much of the play is nonverbal communication. And we had to, I don't know, just by increments, I guess, of them trusting me and them being their own meters about how big they had to get in order for it to read and not go beyond that. Because audiences have really responded to, to the subtlety of, of the act and as being one of the joys of the experience of that play. Because it, it, it was never going to be a play where, um, you know, if we took out all the pauses and they, and they pumped each line, it, it would probably get a lot more laughs I'm sure there will be subsequent productions down, you know, down the road where that will be the case. And the play can withstand that, I think, because I think they're solid characters. But what we wanted to do was something different. Um, so I guess it was a matter of uh, you know, just listening to each moment and seeing how big or how small it had to be. Another question? sort of uh, have midnight meetings with the cast and uh, I, tr- I actually I, I, I guess it's a product of working at, at the O'Neill I uh, I think it there comes a point when an actor comes to know his character more fully than the director or maybe even the playwright and uh, an actor continually has a problem with a speech, or two actors continually have a problem trying to make a scene work. And if it happens to be at a spot where I've already gone to the playwright and said, this scene isn't working, uh, I suggest we do this and this, and he says no. If the actors have the same problem, then that will add weight to it. And that isn't me giving up the responsibility of the direction or saying, yes, see, they can't do it, so we should change it. But um, it is it, maybe a little more of a... gives more room to the argument. Uh, does that answer your question? The way the power of the actor, the power of the system, the way 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 the power of
reproduction is the same, same problem with reproduction. You know, we're in the U.S. and this has You mean whether or not I'm going to do it based on whether or not he's going to come out with a rewrite? Uh, well, I think it, I think it depends. I think a lot of playwrights, justifiably so, are reluctant to do a certain kind of, of a big rewrite until they have heard the actors say the word. And uh, there have been plays where I felt the whole play has to go through one more rewrite before it it goes into production. And if the playwright doesn't want to do that, then maybe somebody else should do it. I feel that strongly about it. But, but if I, as I did actually with Chris, I thought, you know, I thought the, the ending of the ending of Black and Law changed about 23 times. It had a different ending on every night of previews. Uh, and I said to him when I first read the play, I said, I, I, I don't know where Act Two is going. And uh, I don't know what I can say to you now, but uh, it doesn't seem right. So I planted the seed in his brain that, uh, that I have a problem with it. And uh, during the first week of rehearsals, I, I, I would uh, again say, I still have a problem with it. I still don't know what to say to you about it. So he would go home knowing that, and then I would say it to him one more time. And then uh, and then finally I would know what I thought it needed. And then he could say yes or no. But uh, I do respect, though, that a, a playwright at some point feels that he's going to lose something until he hears it spoken by the actors in the rehearsal process, and that you might lose something that... I mean, there are things that have... I've been proven wrong where they've worked beautifully once the actors started speaking and that I thought just were unnecessary or, uh, or uh, illogical before we went into One more question. Uh, I'm curious about knowing the role, which is art, varying your approach to the equal approach to the Yeah. Well, I found that, um, again, I tried to be as organic in my process so that so I personally find, uh, I don't know how many of you know, know that play, but I, Act Two, which is what most people consider like, the, the funniest act, uh, I like Act Three the best myself. Mm-hmm. And I found that even in directing it, I mean, Act Two took me eight solid days to block it, to get through it once. Uh, I'll never direct that play again. <laughs> uh, we, had a, we had a wonderful time. Uh, we had two weeks of rehearsal uh, with many colored pieces of tape representing you know, upstairs and downstairs. And actors had to 
to that whenever they slammed a door. And, uh, and this went upstairs. <laughs> we had a view at Puget Sound from a rehearsal hall, so that was nice. Uh, but, um, but I tried to approach the comedy. I mean, you know, what was at stake here? This woman invests a lot of money in the show, and she was starring in it, and the show was a piece of shit. And everybody knew it, but, uh, but it was very important to these people that they get through it. So we just, you know, we tried to find. And um, I talked to people who had been involved in the Broadway production. There were some things in Act Two which were, when you read the stage directions, if you can get through them, um, there's no reason for a lot of the stuff to happen except for a joke. And, uh, and to try and reconstruct that from, from, from the script is, is even less funny. Uh, so some of that we just did away with. So essentially the, the, the process remained the same to try and find out what is this scene about, what do you want, what do you how what are you gonna do to, to get what you want? And uh, that really was the core of it. But act two again, there were some things that are just that were contrived. I mean there were nine people running around doing all this stuff. And uh, you know, and it only took about I think, 18 minutes for Act Two to come or something like that. Once the ball starts rolling, um, but Act Three, I think, when, when people are really ready to kill, that's when things really got funny. Um, yeah, we had uh, two weeks rehearsal time on the set. They built it uh, in the shop, just like a James Bond. First scene in James Bond movie, the Seattle Rep scene shot. It's enormous. So that was, we couldn't have done it without. So. I want to thank you for enlightening. <laughs> and, uh, a scientific look at what you did. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.